we have to look at ourselves. Like we are not innocent in this. We are not the good guys here. We are teaching things that is harmful and causing gross injustice and violence and terrible things against women and, and female genital mutilation and a lack of education and a lack of resources and domestic violence and rape and all of these things I experienced. These are all results of a culture of patriarchy that puts men above women. I'm Kate Lundquist, and I love to celebrate humanity and unique perspectives from all walks of life. Listen in, learn, and grow as my friends and I share about our rides on life's crazy roller coaster. Welcome to Kate Had Me Meet. Today, you get to meet author, blogger, podcaster, Megan Shans. She has a podcast called Faith and Feminism. I highly encourage you to subscribe. Look that one up. Her book is also coming up, Women Rising. It comes out in a couple days. I will have all the links to her book, her podcast, her website, and all the books that she mentions in her interview. I will put them up. I just have to say it was so refreshing to have this interview and it's just so refreshing to have somebody like Megan out in the world really saying all the things. I must say being born with a soul that loves to have a voice and talk and share and be in tough conversations and lead and speak, that was really hard to navigate that in church. As Megan traveled the world and served as a missionary, she also saw a huge need for Christians to really um, develop compassion, empathy, and a heart for social justice. And so listen in as Megan describes how all of that came to be. Here's Megan. All right, Megan, it is a huge honor to see your face and be interacting with you live since I have followed along with you for quite a bit of time now. I'm not sure if Instagram would even be able to tell me how long I've followed mm-hmm. you, but somewhere along the way, I came across a comment that you had <laughs> made and it resonated with me. And I just, you had expressed some pain or grief mm-hmm. in a comment on a shirt on an account we both follow. And I just mm-hmm. went, she's somebody I want to know because <laughs> you were relatable to me oh. uh, and you were able to name something that not very many people were calling out. Specifically, again, I don't recall the exact comment and what the topic was, but it was likely around church. Yeah. And so, since then, I follow along with you and found great solidarity in following you. So, thank you for being on here. You have so many exciting things going on. I honestly don't even know where to begin. So, why don't you just start with telling us who you are, and we can go from there. Yeah. So my name is Megan. I, um, I am so glad that you found my words relatable. That's my hope, um, is that people can see my themselves in my story, because I don't think my story is just my story. I think it's the story of a lot of women specifically who've grown up in this context. And so, um, a little bit about me, my name is Megan. Um, I am the host of the faith and feminism podcast, I am a former missionary that worked with sexually exploited women and through working with them, uh, realized that the gender roles that I was taught in the church was contributing to their oppression and realizing that I was also complicit in their oppression. And it led me to quit my job 
and change the way I did things because I didn't want to be complicit in the people I was or in the, the oppression of the people I was trying to help. Um, and what it really led me to is, is ultimately reclaiming and trying to reclaim feminism for the Christian faith. Um, I think Jesus was a feminist. I think scripture points us towards feminism um and which is you know some people might not be super familiar with what that means but feminism is just the equal rights between men and women that's that's it that's a diction- dictionary definition and i think um it's really been perverted by people who don't want women to have equal rights and they've made it about something else um yeah so essentially i'm trying to reclaim feminism for the Christian faith. And one of the ways I did that aside from my podcast is I wrote a book. Um, it comes out May 11th. Um, I don't know if it's already come out. I don't know when this is releasing, but it comes <laughs> like, out very soon. What's the date on Friday? Cause I'm going to play you on Friday. So that's okay. Yeah. Right step. Yep. So right before, um, but yeah, I wrote a book called women rising that kind of outlines my journey at my complicity in harmful systems and turning and changing and asking my people essentially to also turn and change and do better. So, yeah. I don't mean to laugh. I, I mean, I find it almost funny because it's, it's so rare. I feel like I found a rare gem. Mm. I think you and I could both name women in Christian settings that we look up to we probably mm-hmm. both follow accounts you know but they seem almost like these far off rock stars like okay mm-hmm. wow they have it figured out they've put so much on the line they've done the internal work they've used their voice for change but how could I ever do that mm-hmm. but it just I don't know but it seems so rare to find people who truly can call themselves out their own complicity like you, mm-hmm. you keep talking about and then actually make the changes so yeah. Nice work. Um, I am a couple chapters into your book as somebody mm-hmm. who get, got a sneak preview as being mm-hmm. part of the launch. As a lot of people in the launch group, it, it's like they read it with just continuous nodding of the heads. Mm-hmm. And, um, and like, wow, she said the things. And <laughs> I do what, say the things. You say the things. <laughs> That yes. we have to not see and yeah. not acknowledge and not recognize. So thank you for that ahead of time. I, the first of all, the word feminism, feminist. Yeah. It's very difficult because that is in most Christian circles. That's a little bit of a swear word. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is something that both men and women. Right. Create you know, almost it. They, they demonize that term mm-hmm. and they can quickly name why it is harmful to the Christian family ideal and lifestyle. So I don't know what, can you t- speak a little bit more on, on that and, and your, in how it relates to your book? Yeah. So, I mean, you and I have a similar story. It sounds like i um, just raised in the conservative evangelical church. I was raised to believe that feminism was a bad thing. I was raised to believe that my primary purpose on this planet was to serve men. Uh, I was almost, I don't have a better word than grooming, but being groomed to be a good housewife, to be sexually available, to produce lots of children, uh, and to basically just support my husband in whatever career he wanted. But but me having a career was kind of off the table. Like, no, you set aside your dreams for your husband because ultimately 
women were created for this. And so I remember being raised with that idea. And as a younger kid, like when I was really young and didn't, I guess, know my place yet, I really bucked against it. I bucked against a lot of the teachings. And um, I remember getting in trouble for it. I was told that I was not behaving how a girl should behave. I was outspoken. I was loud. I was um, competitive. I would, you know, like you want to have a pitch-up contest, I'll beat you. I was like, I was that child. Um, but slowly, but surely through my upbringing in the church, um, I was, that was, I guess I don't beaten out of me. I should say it wasn't like physically beaten out of me, but the cost of, um, the cost of trying to belong in this setting was to silence my voice was to shrink, was to become small. And I think that's the story of a lot of us. We were told we were made wrong and we need to become someone else. So we become someone else to be accepted. And for a long time, my need to be accepted was stronger than my need to tell the truth. And I think for a lot of us, um, that's, that's our story is that we have been told and taught to tell comfortable lies. This doesn't really bother me. I agree with you there. This is fine. I, you know, if I'm made to submit, I'll just do it. Like, this is what good women do. You know, these little lies that we try to believe, but if we're being honest with ourselves, it feels wrong. It feels not what God intended. And so that, um, of course, with that kind of teaching complementarianism, I mean, what we could really call that is patriarchy. This is literally patriarchy. Men are in charge. Women submit. Women are there to serve men. Um, that is patriarchy. Um, and so this Christian patriarchy that I was raised in, of course, feminism, which calls for the equality between men and women is going to be a challenge to that and as such should be demonized. And so it's not just that we see feminism demonized. We'll see other movements like Black Lives Matter. This is a threat to the power of white supremacy in the church. So we're going to demonize Black Lives Matters. We're going to demonize feminism. We're going to demonize queer people because it's not the way it's been done. And we don't want these people to have access. We only want white men in power to have access. And so we demonize it. And so for us growing up in this concept and not knowing better, not being exposed to anything else, if we're told something's evil, what option do we have to believe it? And especially if there's so much fear mongering about hell, like if you're a feminist, you'll go to hell. I cannot tell you the number of times Christians have told me I'm going to hell. I get emails, I get comments. I'm, um, yeah, it's, it's really terrible. It's a lot of fear mongering. You can't speak up. You can't be who you are. Or God will send you to hell, which I mean, we could get into a whole nother can of worms there and I'm not going to, for the sake of time, but um, yeah. So I think the, I, the church, the evangelical, the white evangelical church has demonized causes for a long time that that becomes threats to their power. Also socialism. Socialism is another threat to that power. This idea that, I mean, even though <laughs> I remember reading the Bible and being in part of a Bible study, I'm like this, you know, I'm learning about like the different, like socialism, communism, um, capitalism in school. And I'm like, Jesus, the things Jesus is telling us about money seem a lot more like socialist principles, like share among each other, like give what you need to, you know, like this sounds like socialism. So why is it so demonized in the church? And there's actually an incredible quote by, um, I forget his name, but he was a, he's a priest in Latin America. Um, but he said, uh, when I give bread to the poor, they call me a saint. 
And when I ask why they do not have bread, they call me a communist. Wow. And um, I think that's the thing. And so if we're, if we're, if we're peeling back the layers of why do we, why are certain things demonized in the church? Why are they being told they're evil? Well, I think it's a threat to their power. And so as such, this is not, this is not, this is not the gospel anymore because the gospel, the Jesus I read about, he says, give up your power. Like we see in the old Testament, um, stories of like, even righteous quote unquote, righteous Kings, like Solomon or David, they were acquiring power through force, through wars, through genocide. And then when the new Testament comes, they expect Jesus to be like a King, like David or Solomon. And he was nothing like that. He continually served, gave up his power, told people to give away their stuff to the poor, elevated women, sat with like broke societal norms, called out the Pharisees, called out the religious elite. So for me, like, I don't even know how the church became so obsessed with protecting their power and putting people in places and giving people hierarchies. Because if there's one thing we learn from scripture, it's that Jesus really doesn't like hierarchies. In fact, when, you know, there's, there's a part of scripture where his disciples, Jesus's disciples were like, I'm going to be at the right hand of Jesus. I know I'm going to be at the right hand of Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, you're not getting it. This is not the point. We're not doing hierarchies here. We're trying to give up our power, trying to fight for a new world, reimagining a new world where justice and love is our driving factors. Loving our neighbors as ourselves is our driving factors, not who's going to be at the top. And so Sadly, the church has um, been historically a place. It's not just recently, but historically, we can look at um, you know the the way that Christianity has been used to literally uh, claim land from Native Americans to commit genocide. Also, um, you know, the church historically to 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 say that slavery is a good thing. Um, the church has used this. Um, power, hunger, and in a negative way that is, I think, anti-gospel. There's also been another church called the People's Church, and I'm speaking specifically from an anti-racist educator I follow. Her name is Rose J. Percy. There's this concept of ruler's church and people's church, the ruler's church that uses religion to oppress and control and colonize. And then there's a people's church that uses uh, their faith in God to liberate. And so we see also the abolitionists Christians, yet the slaveholders are Christians. They're both claiming the same God, but the way they act out their faith is completely different. And I think we can see from the fruit, which ones were the true followers of Jesus and which were using religion as a way to gain power. And so why has feminism been demonized in the church? It's because women having equal rights is a threat to power. It's a threat to patriarchy. And so we're going to demonize this and call it bad. It's a very tricky thing when your sense of belonging is within a church community. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes people get their value tied up in that too. Right. Rather than how God sees them, it's how mm-hmm. your church community sees you. So it's really hard to speak out. Um, I don't know. Do you think that money, how does money get tied up in this too with like, there's not a lot about money and power lately with yeah um well I mean okay so let's if we're talking about the modern church Mm -hmm. um we recently witnessed an insurrection of the capital where I mean it was clearly a political thing where um I guess very conservative Christians flew Jesus flags and if we're talking about 
to talk about politics, because if we're going to talk about money, we got to talk about politics. Um, this whole idea, like, is another thing that I had to deconstruct in my my book is I was raised conservative Christianity, conservative politics as well, which meant I can remember like asking people in the church, like, why do we not want tax? Like, why do we not want our taxes to help people? Why do we want it to go to defense mm-hmm. and, and war? but we don't want it to go to our neighbors that might be struggling. And, and you get all these things like, well, they don't deserve it. Uh, they're, they're poor because they're lazy. Like if we give them money, we're just enabling them to be lazy and not do work and all of this other stuff. And which, I mean, which again is a huge myth. There's a really great podcast about this called poverty myths by W Y and Z. And it blew my mind. I listened to it several years ago, but kind of talking, just breaking down these, like pull yourself by your bootstraps. But we see this really close um, aligning between conservative politics, which is a lot of it comes from fiscally conservative kind of like family value, family values, which by the way, are basically being pro-life, but it's not really pro-life because it's just like pro-birth. Mm-hmm. And they're also like for execution, right? So they're not really pro-life. And then you also see like, okay, well, if you want less abortions, let's talk about what causes abortions. Why would a woman want an abortion? Could it be that we're the only wealthy country that doesn't have paid maternity leave by law? The only one. Could it be that our healthcare system is also the only one that's a wealthy country that it costs Ten, at least $10,000 to have a child. Um, in other countries, you know, those costs are covered. Could it be that um, the way we don't have any support hardly for single moms at all, mm-hmm. that you have to choose between working and supporting your child? I mean, these are all things that drive to high abortion rates. Could it be that we're taking away birth control um, from people? Could it be that we're passing laws that uh, Hobby Lobby doesn't have to pay for birth control for their employees because that's the Christian thing. Like what? So if we're talking about like these politics, these, you know, we don't want to help because we don't want to enable, yeah. but really that's not like, if you dig into it, that's not actually the problem. Yeah. <laughs> the problem is that we're not using our tax dollars to help others. And so this, I think when we're talking about money in the church, even about where the church spends money. So if you look at like the New Testament, it seems like a very big priority to God, even in the Old Testament, to take care of the poor, to take care of the orphan, to take care of the widow. This is a very high priority. In fact, in Isaiah, um, God says, you know, I don't want your religious festivals. I don't want your prayers. I don't want your worship songs. I don't want anything until you learn to stop hurting people and wash your bloody hands and learn how to take care of the vulnerable among you. And this is all throughout Isaiah. This is throughout uh, Amos. And then we have Jesus come. So these are all prophets like calling out religiously. And then we have Jesus come and he's like, give away your money. He's like the two greatest commandments, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, And this whole idea, or like, even when we're talking about the goats and the sheep, a lot of people use this this uh, verse or this part of scripture to say there's a hell that I don't think that's the point of that scripture. I think the point is um, all these people are saying, I knew you, Jesus. I sung you songs. I prayed to you in public. And he's like, away from me. I never knew you. And they're like, well, wait, wait, we wait. What are you talking about? And he's like, every time you visited, you know, those in prison or fed the hungry or whatever, whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. So to me, taking care of people's needs, regardless if they deserve it, 
which is a whole nother conversation, seems to be a very core tenet of the Bible. Yet in the conservative church I was raised in, that seemed to be not really a priority at all. Maybe we would say that was a good thing, but I cannot tell you the number of times today that I've had conservative Christians say, Megan, you know, I think your heart for people is so great, but I think it's getting in the way of your relationship with God. Like, what? I think I literally says in the Bible that we will know you are Christ's disciples by your love for one another. And so again, even this idea of like, I'm not serving God enough because I care too much about people. When I think that's very, the very evidence of our faith, that's what the Bible says should be the evidence of our faith is how we care for one another, how we, you know, clothe the naked or visit those in prison or feed the hungry or all of these things. And so for me, where does money come in? Well, it seems like this, this need for money, even, it even condemns wealthy people. It says it's easier for uh, a camel to walk through the eye of the needle so than people to go have it. It's like people overlook like these really scathing kind of ideas about greed. And yet the church so often is about conservative, the, like being conservative and not spending money and not having my taxes go and don't take, don't tax me so much. Cause I want to, you know, buy another house or maybe that money needs to go to the church, but where does the church send that money? Well, let's get a bigger building. Let's build a new playground. Let's do all these things. And essentially just becomes a country club for the people who go to the church because all of the money is going back into that very small knit community instead of going into, uh, you know, the city or going to people in need. And so when we're talking about money, I think the reason that we got to this conservative fiscal Christianity is again, people wanting power. And for a long time, forever, um, money has meant power. And so I think that's another reason is like, if, (laughs) if I can control the money, I can think of Actually, I went to a really incredible church or it started out really incredible and I saw it go downhill because they were running out of money and they had one incredibly wealthy donor and they thought the only way they could survive was to kind of meet her agenda um, because she had so much wealth that that's how they were going to stay in place. But what they did is they compromised their values to stay afloat, to, to get this woman's money and ended up losing a good portion of their membership. And so I think, um, yeah, so I think sadly the need for money, churches do need money to function, but the, the need for money has, has, uh, I, I think compromised the values of what the church was meant to be for. And, uh, I also think if we're looking at, okay, where is the church actually spending their money? I think that's a really important question to ask. Yeah. Is it going into the community or is it just going into a bigger building or new speakers or a coffee shop or my pastor's salary? And he has, you know, like tons of money. Yeah. Um, so those are all questions that I think we need to ask ourselves is, is, is this actually what we, what we see in, in the Bible for a model of the church? It, it, it doesn't look like it to me. Totally. Totally. I think that was part of my own awakening is, Mm -hmm. is watching something that I loved so much. I had really cherished the church, the idea Mm -hmm. of the church and what it was supposed to be. And then slow, like a slow death, watching it 
like the mm. Titanic go, it's right. like steering right toward the iceberg. Mm-hmm. Of, I don't know, destruction, or at least, at, I mean, becoming a, a community club of, right. of like-minded conservatives who are out for themselves. And, mm-hmm. and I just, no matter when I started to finally get the courage to be a little louder and saying, mm-hmm. what are you doing? Stop, stop, stop. Mm-hmm. And then realizing that they didn't care. That's mm-hmm. exactly what they wanted. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, all this time, I thought, I thought they were right. poor people. I thought they mm-hmm. were. And just this dismissal of our, and Trump and you right. know, all these things. And all this time they're speaking against LGBTQ, transgender mm-hmm. people and giving us these huge warnings while we have, you know, millions of Josh Duggars running around right. that you know, who are, or, you know, Catholic priests or whoever mm-hmm. it may be, but there are some real dangers within these systems that are being created that right. we should be talking about, but because it takes looking inside of ourselves and our own doings, it, it becomes ignored and swept under the rug. Mm-hmm. So yeah, what, what really you talk about your missionary work. And I got into that part of the book where you were working with these women and your mm-hmm. compassion and empathy really forced you to reconsider a lot of what was happening in your own Mm -hmm. life and what these mission projects were doing and were they really helping? Can you tell me more about that? I, I I don't know how many of your listeners grew up in the church, but probably, probably a lot of them, but for women or specifically for me, I wanted to serve God with everything, but I couldn't be a pastor and I couldn't be a preacher and I couldn't do all of these things. Couldn't be a leader in the church because I was a woman, but was what was open to me was missionary work. And yeah. so I chose to get into missions. I think for a couple of reasons, one is I didn't want to be a housewife or at least not the way it had been described to me. Yeah. And another reason is I did want to serve God with everything I had. And I also, there was also another part of me that I had been raised kind of with this, um, this, this idea of, um, original sin or absolute depravity where for those who aren't familiar, or maybe you're very familiar, there's this idea that, uh, humans are the worst and, um, God hates, he doesn't hate them, but he, he loves them, but he only loves Jesus and them. So it's like this, uh, this verse that Paul, this prayer that Paul prays is like less of, um, less of me, more of God. I think it's a perversion of that prayer. Like I don't, nothing that's actually me. That's my personality, nothing of me and everything of God, because I'm a terrible person. And that was kind of the teaching I was taught is like humans are, they're terrible. And the only thing that makes us kind of okay is Jesus. And God doesn't love you. He loves Jesus in you. So it's almost like God's a giant narcissist, right? That, um, the only thing he likes about you is himself and you. And so I had been taught with this. And so I had a lot of issues. I was super judgmental, um, because if I, I couldn't have compassion for my, myself, there's no way I could have, or even fathom compassion for other people, um, because I didn't allow it for myself. Um, I was rigid. I was perfectionistic. Um, I, you know, was kind of just, uh, just trained to like anything that I felt was wrong or any doubt I had just to like shove it down, to try and be this version 
of the of Jesus uh, that I thought that I was taught. And so the way I was taught to do that, or the way I could do that most was through missions work, or so I was taught. Um, and so as I started, um, I went on this prop- program called the World Race, which is an 11 country, 11 month trip. And I was very quickly confronted with misogyny in the church. And it wasn't obviously with my context, it wasn't the first time I had heard this. Um, but it was the first time I realized I wasn't alone and kind of questioning it. And as I continued on, I was um, in Kenya and girls were telling me that they had survived female genital mutilation, which is, um, it's a terrible practice that has, it's happening to millions of girls, um, but uh, where they remove some or all of the external genitalia, uh, girls can often bleed to death during this procedure. And it's an, it's a way of controlling women's sexuality. It's kind of this rite of passage. And um, so this happens. And I, I remember had hearing about it in my college class, but I never thought I would encounter it. But yet these women, these young girls uh, were telling me that they were survivors of female genital mutilation and that they were starting to question it. And so I'm, um, while I'm kind of in this context, I'm also noticing some other things about this culture that practiced female genital mutilation was also that uh, girls were discouraged from getting an education. They were told that their place was in the home at same kind of same ideas, like serve my husband, stay home. Education is unimportant because eventually I'm just going to make babies and serve my husband. Mm -hmm. And so they were telling me these teachings and how they were fighting to go to school and how they were surviving these injustices. And then also stories of rape that I was starting to connect um, uh, very like in some part of my brain starting to connect. I think there's something here with the, these gender roles, which I'm familiar with. Um, it, it looks a little bit different in the United States, but it's the same concept and the violence that they're experiencing. And so, um, and then the next month, uh, more women were, telling us that they had been beaten by the men in the village. So again, male violence upon women. And I was reading a book called um, Half the Sky, which is a book by Nic- Nicholas Kristoff and Cheryl Wudan, um, which talks about the oppression of women around the world. And one of the things it suggests is using microfinance programs to kind of even the playing field. If you give mm-hmm. woman, women money to reinvest in their fa- family, not only um there's studies that show in sub-Saharan Africa that 80% of that, the money that you give a woman is reinvested into her family, into her community. So everyone's lifted up, where, whereas men would only reinvest 20% and spend 80% on often alcohol or other things like that. And so this is not an indictment against men or biologically men. This is an indictment against the culture that taught men that it's not their responsibility, like they're kind of kings of their household and they take care of yourself first and not those around you. And so confronted with this violence, um, I reached out to the founder of our organization and I said, what can we do? And he told me rather foolishly in retrospect to start an organization, even though I was only there for a couple of weeks, he put me in charge of a, uh, put me in touch with a microfinance guy. Um, 
And the microfinance guy like called out my white saviorism, which was a concept I had not even heard about at that time. But I wrote the cringiest email. And every time I read it, I cringe. It's in my book and you can cringe when you read it too. Um, But I said, you know, these women are uneducated and I'm going to help them and I'm going to solve their problems essentially. And he called me out and he's like, who are you to say they're not educated? Their education looks different than you, but could you keep, you know, children alive during a drought? Could you uh, farm? Could you make cassava? Like all of these things, of course they couldn't, their education just looked different. And to think that this plague of male violence has been happening for so long, why would one white girl who saw the problem think she could fix it? Um, so just kind of this idea, but it was white saviorism. It was what I was taught in the church that I have what you need. I was literally taught as a missionary, you have what these people need and you can change their lives just with a prayer. Like that is literally what we're taught in missions. You can just go show up someplace and you have exactly what they need and just fix their problems. And, or if you don't fix their problems, it doesn't matter because they said the prayer and they're going to heaven and that's all that matters. And so I was really confronted with my desire to to truly help probably because I saw myself in these women, but at the same time, are my motivations pure? Is this about making me feel good Mm -hmm. is, or is this about me listening and learning and truly under trying to understand the scope of the problem? So, um, I was only there for a few weeks and aborted that plan pretty quickly, um, to like start an organization and just, you know, kind of had to look in the mirror for the first time. And this was in 2012. So uh, no one was really talking about white saviorism. I, I think I got an introduction earlier before it became a larger topic of conversation. Um, but I really struggled to be on the mission field after that because I was wondering why I was there. What does this look like? Is there a way to do missions that's ethical? Why am I here? Is this more about, is this whole trip just me trying to be good and, um, or is it about helping others? Or why do I feel like I'm equipped? Why do I feel like I have what other people need? And asking myself these questions and, and still, you know, being on the trip and coming face to face with more injustices with sex trafficking. I, I met a young girl, uh, she's four or five, who's being raised by the pimp who sold her mother. And on top of that, had a hearing impediment that made it, she wasn't being taken care of. So she had no way to communicate with anyone. And um, just not being cared for at all and being raised by a pimp who had trafficked her mother and knowing that was the future she had to look forward to if it wasn't already happening to her. Um, and, And really, again, coming like this is the most terrible thing I've ever seen or encountered. Um, but is it my job to fix it? Why do I want to help? Why do I care? Why, like, in asking myself again, all of these questions and knowing that part of me was made to fight gender injustice. But the question is, how do I do that? And I remember the guy who called out my white saviorism, his name is Bobby Garner, and I share his emails in the book, but he said, Megan, I think you need to sit back and listen and learn. And I do think God is going to use this in your life later. And I mean, how true is... (laughs) How true is, is what he said. And so I, I continued to do mission work, but I, I was starting to deconstruct a lot of these foundational principles um, that I had been taught. And I think, um, so I continued to work specifically with sexually exploited women, um, doing inner healing retreats. 
And um, it was several years later after that um, encounter that I was uh, leading a trip in the Philippines and um, I was partnering with an organization that gave uh, women who were working in the, the bars an opportunity to get a full ride to, uh, to college. And so a lot of the reason the women are in these situations to begin with, it has so much to do with, um, I mean, some of them are trafficked by their families or their loved ones. Some of them know what they're going into, but don't have any other options. Some of them are still like, it's kind of like half and half. They, they get lured into a bar. They don't fully know the extent of what that means. Um, and I, and, uh, you know, I worked with women who told me, you know, uh, with climate change, a lot of these provinces, these outer lying islands are getting wiped out due to climate change, like these massive typhoons are coming. And so families will be left with starving and they'll send their oldest children to the city and they say, find a way to feed us for dying, essentially. And so um, I heard several stories of I, you know, I was the oldest girl, but I didn't have a formal education because, um, or traditional education, because we lived on a farm and we lived off the land. And now I'm being thrown into the city and there's no job opportunities available for me. And so then that's when a trafficker, or maybe they know more about what they're getting into. And like I said, in the same bar, you'll hear women who are like, oh, I knew what I was getting into. And some women who said, I had no idea what I was getting into. And so, um, then ending up being in this place where women are sold to foreigners, specifically Western men. So that would be Australia, uh, United States. Um, none, I didn't talk to a single woman who wanted to be there. It was all like, this is how I survive. Um, I'm here. This is how I feed my children. This is how I feed my family. Um, there's no other options for me. And so the, the, the ministry was to um, find a way to provide um, provide, you know, provide a safe house and, and a college education, but also for their dependents. That's why so many of them are stuck is like, even if I can get out, what's going to happen to all of these dependents that I'm trying to keep food on the table for. And so the ministry I worked with also um, provided for dependents or to a certain number of them. And so I was talking um, to a woman one night and it was her first night in the bars. And uh, she had a, <laughs> a one or two-year-old son, and she was really, I think she was 18, um, maybe younger, right? Because they have to technically be 18 to work in these bars. And she was like showing me how her, her boyfriend was abusing her and had like these cigarette burns on her. And he's like, my boyfriend's making me do this. Um, and it's also the only way I can provide for my son. And so um, it was her first night. And as I was talking to her, these um, six drunk men came up and wanted to buy her for the night. And technically she should have a choice to say no. And so I turned to her, I was like, you, you can say no to them. And she said, no. And then I said, no, and they weren't taking no for an answer. And they started grabbing her. And I just remember not knowing what to do. And I had a teammate run over and they said, why don't you buy her first? And so I ended up uh, buying her, which is just a terrible concept to begin with because you don't, you don't want to support this industry. But at the same time, I didn't, I didn't know what else to do in that situation. And these men still tried to take her. And uh, I ended up getting me and my teammate got into an argument with the bar management and said, she's ours, we bought her, which is just a completely insane conversation to have in the first place. 
And um, I eventually won the argument. The whole bar is looking at us and she was able to go home and she's like, thank you. I'm like really grateful that I can spend the night with my son. Um, But these men throughout this argument just got more and more angry and they're super drunk and, and their anger just grabbed another woman off the stage and left with her. And I remember that woman looking back at us just with the terror in her eyes. And I remember thinking, I just made the situation infinitely worse because at least before these men were angry and now they're drunk and angry. And I know what drunk and angry men do. We all know what drunk and angry men do. And, you know, a year or so previous, one of the women I had worked with was murdered by a client. So this work is extremely dangerous. Um, and there's no really consequences. Like they don't track down the guys who do this stuff. Um, and so I, I, I just, I like, what am I even doing here? Like I, we might be able to help one woman, but she's so easily replaced. And are we ultimately like making the situation worse? Am I making the situation worse? Um, and just being confronted with a really hard question, like, what do my, this is what happened. What do I do with it? are my hands bloody? How bloody are they? And I remember not being able to sleep that night. Um, and waking up the next night, having to like, you know, lead the team on no sleep. And then we went out again the next night and I kept on asking the question, like, this doesn't, I feel like I'm not what I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm missing it. I feel like I'm not actually doing the most effective thing that I should be doing right now. Yeah. And um, that next night I got my answer. This, this man called us over. He's an American man and his friend. They were both American. One, one of them was like 60. Another one was like a really buff, maybe like 30 year old. Mm-hmm. And he was asking us why we were there. And we told him and we, you know, turned the question back on him. Why are you here? And he went on this huge tirade about how women here were raised right. They know how to respect men and how he was getting the respect that he was entitled to. And as he was speaking, it was like something clicked. I'm like, you sound like my pastors. You sound like the pastors I had growing up. You are so obsessed with a woman respecting and submitting to you and being subservient to you that when you didn't get it, in the United States, you went and bought it from a woman who had, you know, and we don't, like I said, in the bar, you can have stories of women who are literally trafficked and forced in there or some woman who has no choice. So either way you're exploiting women and you're driving them demand and you think you're like helping her. And I just remember like, oh my God, I think this is it. Like, we are complicit as long as I submit to these gender roles that create enormous power differentials that teach men that they're entitled to women, that teach men that they're entitled to respect. When I am going along with that and, and, and telling men that that's their role, to, my role is to respect them, I'm causing the problem. These men sound just like my pastors. And that is alarming. And um, it wasn't the first time I, I, it was the first time it came so clear because what he was saying was like, I think I've heard this in a sermon before, but I had seen these themes again and again and again and again. And so I even talked, you know, I talked about female genital mutilation. I talked about trafficking. I talked about all these things, but it all centered around male entitlement, male power, 
need for dominance. And that was literally what the church was treating like teaching and said it was holy and good, but I saw that it was not holy and good. It was dirty and it was rotten and it was producing rotten fruit. And so I started asking myself these questions. What is my complicity? What is my, the church's complicity? So a lot of these, I mean, if we're talking about white supremacy is also this huge force of objectification of people around the world here in the United States and around the world. Um, but like, what is the church's part? How are we being complicit? And literally my white people, white church going Christians, whatever, have been trafficking people across the sea to exploit them because of white supremacy and, and, and patriarchy is another tool of exploitation. And I mean, I started to, like, that was my realization, but I started to do research because I wanted to back it up. You know, I felt like God was like, Get your people, Megan, go tell them that, that this is rotten, harmful, damaging fruit. And so I, you know, went to go get my people. I started doing research. A lot of studies are coming out now. There's a psychoanalyst that I refer to a lot. Her name is Lynn Mionak, and she talks about sexual assault and power and how sexual assault is actually about power and dominance and a need for control. This is, you know, not a religious study at all. This is just a study. And then we have other researchers. Um, there's one named, um, I think her name is Mahatna Pandi. And I think I mispronounced that. It's in my book, um, which I could look it up um, quickly, but she um, interviewed rapists across India wow. and um, found again, it was all about this male need for dominance and control and um and this idea like that men deserve to be in power and women don't. And then also um, another thing uh, that furthers this point is there is a huge uh, international news story several years ago about a rape of a woman in India who was raped to death on a public bus. Uh, it was terrible. Okay. Um, to go back a little bit, her name is Madhumita Pandi. She's a doctoral student working on her thesis um, at a, an in university. And she was asking the question, why do men rape? She said that men are learning to have false ideas about masculinity and women are learning to be submissive. Everyone's out there to make it look like there's something wrong with the rapist, but this is a part of our own society. They're not aliens that have brought in from a different world. Um, and then there's another researcher here in the United States. His name is Jackson Katz. And he says the same thing. This is a product of our culture. Mm -hmm. And to go back to the rape that I was talking about, when they interviewed the rapist about one of them, there was, he was one, it was a gang rape. Why did he do it? And he said, well, because women belong in the home and she wasn't in her proper place and she should be keeping the home tidy. And so this whole idea of this gender script, this gender role theology that has been preached from the pulpit for so long is actually the exact kind of thinking that rapists use to justify rape. And it's also the exact kind of thinking that's driving the sex trade. Um, and so we really have to look at our complicity in these systems. The church is complicit. I mean, and if not only are they complicit with the teachings, but let's take a brief look at the church right now. Joshua Duggar was just arrested for child sex um, pornography. That's child sex trafficking. And, you know, people are so mad at Wayfair and 
Pizzagate and all of this yeah. stuff that's not real when there's real evidence of child sex trafficking. And guess what? It's Josh Duggar who's raised in this super conservative Baptist setting. And then we have freaking Ravi Zacharias, who again was exploiting his massage workers. And then we have Robert Long, who just shot up um, a several massage parlors uh, to remove the temptation of the women. And again, another Baptist man. And so we have to, we have to look at ourselves. Like we are not innocent in this. We are not the good guys here. We are teaching things that is harmful and causing gross injustice and violence and terrible things against women and, and female genital mutilation and a lack of education and a lack of resources and domestic violence and rape. And all of these things I experienced, these are all results of a culture of patriarchy that puts men above women. And so Lynn Yonak, that researcher I mentioned earlier, she's like, rape is not about, is not about sex. It's about power and dominance and a need for control. And that's what I've witnessed around the world. And so I wrote a book about it because I, I'm not being complicit in the system by submitting anymore. I am not being complicit. If these women me meant something to me and they did, then the least I can do is fight the system that keeps them in chains. Amen. That's so powerful. I think it's like once we're exposed, like once we actually are on the ground and like meet the people and like truly listen and then truly commit to learning, it's mm -hmm. like we can't, you would think most people can't unsee it. Like, mm -hmm. and and then you can't move forward in life without committing to doing something about it. Like, mm -hmm. how can I not? I have a very hard time compartmentalizing. Um, you know, I live in the community where Dante Wright was just killed. Mm -hmm. I couldn't, I couldn't think straight for three weeks. I mean, it's been four, maybe almost four weeks now, but I, I, there was nothing I couldn't, I can focus. There's injustice there. There's mm -hmm. systemic racism. You know, I can't, how can I move forward in life without knowing what I know and not trying to do something about mm -hmm. it? I don't know. Is that how you feel, particularly in regards to women? Yeah, absolutely. Like I've, I've worked with exploited women for, and whether that was orphans or yeah. girls in school or, or sex trafficked women for, you know, about five years and, um, I, I can't fathom not confronting this system mm -hmm. because I mean, so we talked earlier about like this, this idea that, you know, you can't speak up or you get excommunicated. And that's, that's happened to me. I've, I've been called terrible names. I've, I had a, um, I wrote an article about how gender roles contribute to the abuse of women or prime the group, the, the ground for the abuse of women. And I had someone told message, a male, uh, email me and say, uh, you're going to help. He said that several times, but then he also said, I can tell from your face that you're a whore. And if you haven't been raped, that's an injustice. Um, so yeah, I, I think there's some, some <laughs> pushback that you get, which is, disgusting that it's coming from Christians like that I would get a man who's telling me I need to follow Jesus Christ and then also tell me that I should be raped um based on what my face looks like um but like 
that pushback when I get it, I, you're, first of all, you're just illustrating my point, this idea that gender roles contribute to violence. Um, this, this theology contributes to violence because here you are saying, because I didn't fit my prescribed gender role that I should be raped. This is exactly my point. But more than that, when I speak up, I'm not, I'm not speaking for those those people who, who are my critics. I'm not speaking for the people that think I'm going to hell. I'm speaking for these women that I met around the world. And I'm speaking for myself as a woman who is a survivor of sexual assault, a survivor of extreme purity culture, a survivor. Mm-hmm. I'm not just speaking for these women. These women are oppressed by the same system that I am. And it looks different. And in most, in a lot of these cases, in the stories I tell my book, it's a lot more extreme what they've endured, but the roots of it are the same. And, and, and this idea that like, you know, we don't tell women to be silent unless their voice doesn't matter. And we don't touch women's body unless their consent doesn't matter. It's just so obvious to me that we are not treating women as full people. And there's literally a theology that I was raised with this idea that as a woman, I am not capable of leading. I'm not a full person. I can't occupy, I can't occupy the same spaces that men can. Um, that's an injustice. And, and if I, if I, if I care about these women, if I care about my own self, uh, I, I, I've got to, I got to push back against the system and I got to tell other people, this is harmful. This is like, this is not a difference in theology. This theology is not benign. It's so damaging. And it's, and I don't want to agree to disagree here. This is not about how we baptize. It's our dunking or sprinkling. This is life and death and it matters. And it says in the Bible that we will know a tree by its fruit. What is the fruit of gender role theology? From what I've seen, it's violence. It's violence. It's lessening of women. It's Mm -hmm. their objectification. Even in the church, we say that we're above objectifying women, but that's literally all purity culture is, is turning women into bodies that need to be controlled and hidden. And um, my whole worth is in whether or not my body has been touched. Like that, I mean, I I think what I just get so frustrated at is what I was taught, what I believed is because I was part of the Christian church that I could not harm others. Mm -hmm. What I found is that I had been harming others for a long time. And when I knew better to quote Maria Angelou, I did better. And uh, I'm not going to stop talking because this is, this is harmful. I, I just appreciate that so much. And I think when you are a woman who is so familiar with conservative church cultures, mm-hmm. it's easy to gaslight ourselves all the time. I don't know if you go through this, but uh, you know, when, when you're the lone wolf in a room mm-hmm. full of Christians saying, oh, what this pastoral candidate said was really racist or, mm-hmm. or sexist or whatever, or that mission trip we went on was actually pretty harmful or, you know, looked like colonization or you know did we really help and and you're kind of met with this you know um brick wall of people who don't who aren't ready for those conversations and you start to think is there something wrong with me and then you know you talked about people speaking out through email you know really Mm -hmm. vicious things said your way 
but you also get a lot of dead silence. People who once were part of your world just stop. And they, Mm -hmm. instead of saying anything, they're just silent and their silence is so loud. I don't know. It, instead of, you know, I wanted to ask about like, what, what things have you lost as you have started to speak out and become an advocate? What have you gained? Because I think so many white American Christians are so scared of what they're going to lose. But what I have found that when you dip your toe into the sea of, you know, solving injustice, or at least trying to love people well, there's so much to be gained. And the things that you lose were never of value really to Mm -hmm. begin with. So what have you gained from, from this work that you're doing? I think the biggest thing I've gained is integrity. Mm-hmm. I've so many people, me included. Um, I also talk about it in my book where I just went along with things that I knew were wrong or felt were wrong or thought might be wrong, but didn't have any other exposure to anything else <clears throat> because that's what I was taught. You just submit, just submit to it, Megan. That's mm-hmm. what a good girl does. Mm-hmm. Um but I wasn't living in integrity when I'm just completely telling comfortable lies all the time, swallowing my truth, swallowing the things I know to be true to keep this fake peace, which isn't peace at all. Right. Because peace, true peace is about being able to fully um, exist in the world and not have, not have harm brought against you because you're different or because you look different. And so I think the biggest thing I've gained is integrity Um, I never would have said I lacked integrity before, but -hmm. if you had like pushed me to act like, wait, well, so are you, are you, do you really say what you think? Mm -hmm. Are you just repeating what someone else said? Uh, do you feel safe to say what you really think? Um, and I think that's all, I mean, I understand why people did. I mean, I didn't do it for so long. I didn't speak up for so long, but it, it cost me things. It cost me peace, cost me integrity. It cost me. Um, it cost me a lot to be silent as well. It cost me harmful. Re- I was in harmful relationships because of it. And I allowed harmful things to be said and done to me because that's what I thought I should do. Um, so in this process, I've gained integrity. I've gained my voice. Um, I think, you know, I, I like I said, it's only through having people come against me, loved ones. I've had friends dump me like I've had the silence where they just stop talking to me completely I've also told them that they can't be you know they can't support me anymore because I'm tied to I can't they can't be tied to the liberal agenda um which is sad to me that women's rights is the liberal agenda right which I thought this I thought this was a Christian agenda right like that we care about people um but apparently caring about uh queer folks or black folks or women that's the liberal agenda Um, so I've, I've, you know, I've lost that, but I've also learned that I can live without their acceptance, um, that I can live through what I thought I couldn't, um, you know, for so long, I was so afraid of speaking up because part of me knew that I would be, you know, yes, push them. I knew I would, Mm -hmm. I saw what happened to Christians, like Rob Bell or Jen Hatmaker or anyone else. Yes. (laughs) They'll burn your books, right? Like they hate cancel culture now, but like you started it. You're the one that's ban against Target to have 
uh, you know, because they had gender inclusive bathrooms or Starbucks, because I don't know, one of the million reasons they didn't like Starbucks or like all of these things they've been trying to cancel. Mm -hmm. I knew that speaking up for women was going to cost me. I knew it happened already. Um, but I learned that I can survive what I thought I couldn't survive. I don't need their acceptance. I don't need their approval. Yeah. I need my integrity more than that. And I need to be true to what Jesus Christ. And it's so funny because they all call me not Christian, but the reason I'm doing this is because I saw Jesus stand up to oppressive systems all the time, all of the time. It's like all he did is he subverted the religious elite. He stood up to them. He called them out on their stuff. Um, and so for me, this is the truest way that I can follow Jesus. And am I doing it perfectly? Nope. But when I do make a mistake, I can learn to do better and then do better. And so um, I think, yeah, it's cost me some things, but when I look at what those things were, they're not as the fact that I couldn't be my authentic self with them makes me think it wasn't really as in a valuable relationship as I thought it was, you know, like if I couldn't actually fully show up as I am with these people and still be loved or accepted, it shows me that maybe that relationship was not what I thought it was. And um, maybe one that I shouldn't, you know, it's it's still sad to lose them, but maybe that, maybe I should have, shouldn't have people in my life that want to control me and have me regurgitate what they want me to regurgitate. And so um, I think I've gained a lot more than I lost. That doesn't mean I have, I don't have grief or sorrow still Mm -hmm. for those relationships that, especially when it's family and it has happened for family, but, you know, talking to therapists, it's, it's, so I talk to my therapist is so important, but like, if, if I can't be safe in that relationship, if I can't show up authentically without being used then that relationship is not the best for me. And so I can show up in that relationship in a very surface level way. Um, And that's sad that I don't feel like I can be my authentic self, but I'm okay. And, and I have my integrity. Um, So I don't know if that answers your question. Absolutely. And you said it, like, I mean, they talk about cancel culture now, like it's this, Mm -hmm. I'm like, you have been canceling everybody who is not Mm -hmm. just like you forever. Like, right. And I saw firsthand what they did to Jen Hatmaker Mm -hmm. for merely a mention that she would attend a gay wedding of Mm -hmm. a friend and raise a glass of champagne. Like what on earth? I mean, they threw her under the bus so fast Mm -hmm. and completely dismissed who she was and, you know, everything and, uh, devalued her and, uh, really put the spirit of fear in any other strong woman or person who wants to Mm -hmm. affirm LGBTQ people or Mm -hmm. speak out against the grain in any way. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I just remember now I can say, who cares? Like throw me under the bus because I don't even like, I don't want to be on your bus anyways. Like um, there's plenty of other buses out there. (laughs) I mean, just weak analogy there, but I, that was scary for a long time when my worth and value and belonging was tied up in these communities of worship. So 
you sound more secure in your faith than I feel because so much of my faith, I think was tied up with American church culture. Mm -hmm. I feel like I am hanging by a thread to just my faith in general. So where are you now with your faith church community? Have you found Mm -hmm. a new home? Because I'm, I'm, I'm hoping I can find that too and and start to build. I think part of reclaiming my faith for me has also been letting go of the idea of like, it doesn't look how they taught me it it would look. Does that make sense? Like they told me that a a sign of a good relationship is reading my Bible and praying every morning. I I don't do that. I I don't, I don't do that. I did do that for (laughs) a long time. Um, So for me, yeah, my faith does look different. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent a lot more time, uh, you know, reading, um, books about, you know, white supremacy or, you know, women's rights or, um, uh, you know, womanist interpretations of the Bible yeah. or, you know, Rachel called Evans yeah. inspired. So I, it, I, I have a lot of familiarity with the Bible. I've, you know, as a Christian my whole life, I've read it several times. I've, um, I can, you know, know a lot of the stories. I don't know necessarily where they are, but I am very familiar with the Bible. And so for me, it's re looking at those Bibles through a new lens. That's not white evangelical patriarchy. (laughs) Um, and seeing it from the lens of a minority. And so for me, books like Womanist Midrash by Dr. Will Gaffney, the way they help me look at scripture is completely different. Mm-hmm. I follow accounts like Black Liturgies on um, Instagram. Her name is Cole Arthur Riley. And I see a new way to interpret scripture. And so for me, part of reclaiming my faith has been opening the door for, for those interpretations of scripture to come not from a white wealthy man um and having it come from those on the margins because i think the i mean i think christianity is is it's supposed to be good news you know for for those on the margins the way jesus brought those in and so if we're not actively centering those people then i don't i think that's how we got to where we are today right is we we took away their voice um and yeah. yeah. So for me, it's been, that's what it's been looking, looking like. Um, uh, I started, I decided to leave my husband and I decided to leave our church January, 2020, the one we had been going to because, um, it was a church that we really believed in because it started with house church and everyone had a voice there and they changed the programs to basically take away people's voices. And a lot of fear was, um, as that church I mentioned that kind of gave into their one wealthy white donor. And as we were trying to, I guess, be the more liberal side, we were, you know, initially before they knew we were so outspoken, (laughs) you know, we were asked to be part of leadership and then and then they made their board and it was all conservative people. And then they took away house church to take, to I think take away people's voices because before my goodness like there was so much richness hearing from 
from different people and what, how they saw the scripture, but it was almost like, no, this, we're going to take it back. And only this way is the valid way to learn. We're going to start a discipleship program. So we, you have to learn through it the way I learned through it, which is the, the lens of a white male. They, there was one female staff member on their church and they slowly pushed her out and she was more liberal. And, um, we kept on asking them to, you know, bring in more diversity. And, um, when they, one white guy left, they're like, oh, this is an opportunity. And we know because of our friend is a minority and he applied for the position and they gave it to another white guy. Um, and so this, this, it was like just a slow things. And my husband and I, um, went on a trek across South America for about four months. And so we came back and we're like, okay, we're going to go to this church one more time, give it one more shot. And, uh, we got there and he, the first joke he gives is a joke about how, um, his wife doesn't praise him enough and he should be praised more. And that was then for us. And so then we started going to an Episcopal church led by a black woman. It was affirming. Um, we had gone there for about three sessions, I guess. And then the pandemic hit and their congregants were mainly older. And um, so that we stopped going. <laughs> we couldn't go, it was a pandemic. And so now it's like, we're kind of in this place where we're unchurched. We would like to go back to the Episcopal church. It still hasn't reopened, but I don't want to be in, in a body if it's not being led by a mind. So at this point, we got cut off due to a thunderstorm. So there's a little break here and then we get back on track. Yeah. <laughs> so before we got cut off, you were mm-hmm. saying that, you know, just with this pandemic almost being a blessing with being able to, you know, be forced out of our churches physically, but mm-hmm. being able to have this buffet of churches available to us virtually, right. you know, that was a huge blessing for our family. Mm-hmm. And it just made the, our church world open up and expand so much. So what are you looking for in a church now that options are? Yeah, I'm not sure when I got cut off. So for those listening, um, I'm, and there's a lot of thunderstorms in Atlanta today. So I think that's why we got cut off. I'm not really sure. Um, but so sorry about that. Did you hear about me going to the Episcopal church before I got cut off? Well, there is an Episcopal church with a black pastor. Yes. Female. Yes. Female. That was affirming. And so that's what we were looking for. It was a little, that's a lot different going from evangelicalism to um, Episcopalian. Cause there's a lot of rituals that we have no idea what we're doing. Um, but I will say that um, I remember like, they have like prayer books and looking at the prayer books, just how justice oriented they were. It was really refreshing. And so we would like to go back there um, when it's safe, but a lot of their congregants were very elderly. And so I'm not sure the last I checked, which I don't, maybe was a month ago, they still weren't having services. Um, but I also liked that church because they were doing anti-racism, like instead of like Bible studies, they had like anti-racism, like, um, things like, uh, once a week. And so that is the church I'm most interested in attending, uh, when things return. Um, 
But for the last year, church for us has been marching. It has been um, being with our friends and going, we've been going over main white supremacy. Um, church has looked different and I think it's really broadened our definition. So um, our best friends went to a church that they disagreed with a lot. They're like, you know, this kind of idea, you have to be in a church if you're a Christian and giving so much, like giving so much money to them, their tithe, right? And she's like, the reason we like this church is because they invest like 10% back into the community, but we don't really like anything else about this church. And then they have this realization, why don't we just give a hundred percent to these, com- to the community and not to this, uh, for a lot of reasons is problematic. And so I think that's like part of the shift is like, we've been told so long, it has to be this institution, this like brick and mortar building. I mean, that's literally, I remember being taught by so many pastors that my tithe didn't count unless it was to the church. And if it wasn't, yeah, they literally said that they said, if 10% is not going to the church, that's wrong. And like other things are considered offerings, but your tithe goes directly to the church. And so I was, you know, maybe giving 80% to the church and like 20% to, um, of my tithe to, uh, people need and they told me that was wrong but now I think you know I think tithing means uh, for us a lot of we live in Georgia uh, we donate quite a bit of money to Stacey Abrams fair fight because there's so much voter suppression happening in the state and for us that's one of the most holy things we can do and I, I mean also something that looked like church I was a poll worker we're counting absentee ballots like that just broadening the idea getting involved in society instead of digging our heads in the sand has been church for us. So um, I'm really confident of where I am with God. It doesn't look anything like I was taught it would look like. And I also think therapy, sorry, I think therapy is part of church. I think I still journal. I think that's part of church reflection, meditation, taking care of my body, being in nature, that all feels like church to me. I agree. I agree. And that's, those are all ideas that, uh, so many churches fight against mm-hmm. you know that's something actually my parents were not did not raise me in this strict way it was something I sought out myself and so my dad would always tell me like Kate I find church when I do this or when I go to the lake or when I look at this mm-hmm. beautiful viewer and and you know any mentor would tell me like that's not enough like you that's not biblical things mm-hmm. like that but now that I have been marching and serving people and amongst marginalized communities Dang, if that isn't church, then geez, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Um, so with your book, Megan, who is, who's your audience? It's easier for somebody like me to pick it up and just feel this sense of solidarity and just like, Oh yeah, this is great. But there's going to be a whole sea of people out there who are going to Christianity and feminism. I want nothing to do with it. How do we get this book in their hands? How do we convince them that this is a good thing? And what will they take from it? Yeah. So, I mean, you asked me originally who I wrote the book for. I wrote the book. Um, uh, in fact, my dedication, what is it? I think for all of the women and girls who are silent, may your voice rise. That's who I wrote the book for. And that's who I hope reads the book is because it's my story of unknowingly being complicit in a system that harmed others and learning to find my voice and learning to empower myself and love myself and have compassion for myself. So I think it's for all women 
I do want people who don't agree with me to read it. And that's why I wrote it as a memoir. I start off uh, in a very patriarchal, complementarian, white savior setting. And I didn't just be like, this is how you change your mind. I told my story of how I changed my mind and how I learned to listen and how to grow. Um, and so my hope is that when they read these stories, they see that their theology isn't so benign. So there's a lot of authors out there. For example, Beth Allison Barr just came out with The Making of Biblical Womanhood, which theologically and historically shows how uh, this complementarian, patri- this Christian patriarchy has arisen from historical conditions and not biblical ones. That book is super important. Um, and I hope it changes a lot of people's minds. And um, I, my book is different because I'm addressing the bad f- fruit that people um, produce. And so maybe if that book doesn't convince them, maybe my book will. Um, I think it's harder to hold on to bad theology when you see that it's literally causing violence and harm and sometimes the murder of women. Um, so that's my hope is that they can see that this, this theology doesn't live in a bubble. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just affect you and your family. This has far reaching ramifications. And even if we looked at the 2016 election, there, are, I think it was something that I'm don't quote this because I read a lot of articles, so I don't know if this is right, but I read that like 40% of evangelicals would never vote for a woman president. And so, because they've been taught that women, like John Piper literally says that women should not be police officers because women should never have authority over a man. And so this theology, it doesn't bubble. And the last four years, um, you know, he's running against a woman and according to their theology, women can't lead, which is so funny because look at the Deborah in the Bible. She led a nation. Hello. Like, Clearly, regardless, um, I think it's really important for us to realize that our theology doesn't live in a bubble. It just affects you and your family. It affects the world. And unfortunately, when it comes to gender role theology, this is not just about me rebelling against my gender role. This is because it causes harm and violence towards women. And um, yeah, my hope is that they see that the, the fruit of their theology Mm-hmm. And that they look take a hard look at how their theology affects women around the world. Wow. And then maybe learn to own their voice and embrace it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and and use yeah. it. Yeah. Oh well, yeah, it's learning to listen, reclaiming our voice. So of course I want people to speak up. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the oh. hardest part is. In church settings, I would get all the whispers behind the scenes of like, hey, I agree with you, but I can't say anything. Yes, you can. And nothing will ever get done if we just keep yeah. whispering behind closed doors. But not only is whispering behind closed doors not helpful, um, it's being complicit. Sorry, yeah. but it is. If you're not using your the phrase called white silence is violence when it comes to anti-racism yeah. and and Martin Luther King Jr. talks about he's most frustrated with it wasn't like the Ku Klux Klan. It was these supposed, you know, majority people who wouldn't use a voice or stand up for what is right. And so 
it's not by being silent you're again it's affecting you we are part of a larger system using our voice our talents is a god-given mandate and um you're being complicit and we need to look at our complicity and we need to look at what we're allowing in our spaces um because Ultimately, if we're not speaking up when we hear racism or homophobia or sexism, we are being complicit with it. saying this is okay to have in my space. You're giving approval to it and it's complicity. Absolutely. Beautiful. Well, I look forward to wrapping up uh, reading your book this week, probably tonight. I'll be like those others who really get into it and then can't put it down. In the meantime, where can listeners find you? Where is your platform? Yes, they can find me um, on Megan Chance on Twitter or Instagram. Instagram is the place I most am. I am most. I'm there the most. Um, I have a podcast called Faith and Feminism, mm-hmm. which I think you should listen to. And then my oh. book is Women Rising: Learning to Listen, Reclaiming Our Voice. I will put all the links in show notes. I was listening to your podcast over the weekend. And then this morning I was like on a walk with my daughter in the stroller mm-hmm. and talking about, you know, like reclaiming sexuality and all <laughs> it's like, it's like, listen in Vera Beth. She's two and a half. <laughs> I'm going to do a lot of things differently, but um, yeah, great stuff. And you are, I mean, I'm sorry, but there's not a lot of podcasters out there who are you know, into their second, third year. I mean, you've really committed to doing that and um, yeah, and being consistent. I'm two and a half years in. Yeah. So Wonderful. that's amazing. And yeah, I have all sorts of like questions I would love to ask you. <laughs> and it's like, how do you make a living being a podcaster? Cause it's really just a heart project at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's still a heart project for me, but um. I don't make any money for my podcast. Actually, I pay to do my podcast because I have to pay for all of the hosting services. Um, but my goal is to make, buy my book. This is the only way I get paid. <laughs> Luckily, my husband is paying our bills and I eventually had to quit my part-time job uh, because the podcast and the book writing took too much. So if you want to support people like me yes. and Hey, I don't know what you're going to do, but for me, the book was part of it. And I also um, hope to get on Patreon soon. Yes, that'll be great. Thank you. Thank you, Megan. And we will find you online and we will buy your book and we will absorb it. And then also take our information and just do better moving forward. I think that's, that's the biggest way that we can honor your work and just honor women and, and God at the same time. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Megan. I appreciate it. Stay safe in all those storms. (laughs) Thank you. You sharing this podcast would mean so much to me. And also check out the show notes on katelundquist.live. Subscribing to the podcast will ensure that every Friday you'll get a notification of the new episode. And check out her book. Um, I think that's the biggest way that we can really continue to help find our own voices and just really honor Megan's work. So much good can come of it. So thank you for tuning in. I hope and pray that meeting Megan Shans was a blessing to you. 
My goal is that you leave this interview feeling richer and better for it. Have a great day, everybody.